Welcome to Let's Talk Space Medicine. I'm Kyle Anderson, your medical student slash space nerd host. For your listening entertainment, I gather my other medically inclined space nerd friends to talk all things space medicine. With our powers combined, we hope to explore and entertain the medical questions that stand up between us and the stars. Cheers. Orbit One, here we come. As a brief disclaimer, anything discussed on Let's Talk Space Medicine should not be considered medical advice and is therefore not a substitute for seeking medical help from a doctor. We are simply interested at entertaining topics in the field of space medicine. Hey everyone, how's it going? Uh, I'm Ryan, you might remember me from Orbit Zero. Kyle and I uh, go way back as we, we talked about last time. I think this time we're planning to get into a little bit more of the actual space medicine. So you want to lay out the theme today, Kyle? Yeah, absolutely. So today for Orbit One, um, we wanted to talk about gravity readaptation um, and titled Starting Off on the Right Foot. Kind of cheeky. I like making che- cheeky titles, but super fun. Yeah, um, I think that might be a, a bit of a problem. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see where it goes, but yeah, cool. So really, the, um, the kind of impetus for even talking about this is like i think it's kind of a really when people talk about landing on mars you know they like you always almost think of people like kind of bounding out of the capsule like ready to like plant a flag ready to go like hey here we are like here is humanity on like another planet here we go you know maybe you know pulling out their you know future cell phone and taking a selfie or something like that but uh, there's actually a lot of medical problems with, you know, even reacclimating to Martian gravity from being in space for a period of anywhere from six months to two years uh, is kind of like the current uh, window between how long it'll take for people to get to Mars in, in a one way. So it's going to it's like a long time in space. And when you land you know, there's a significant kind of problem with re-acclimatizing your body to, you know, not only up, down, left, and right, but there's actually some structural changes that happen in your in your body that we hope to talk about today. Right. I was just about to check, actually, uh, what where kind of we are at as a species for longest time any one person has spent in space. Uh because it sounds like it sounds like from what you're saying, um, at least, who knows? You know, by the time we're ready to go to Mars, maybe it'll be much easier to get there. But from what you just said, it seems like it could potentially be one of the longest trips that you know anyone's ever made, just to be in microgravity. Like, let alone all the Martian action once you finally show up. Yeah, I think. But, um, um, kind of. You know, I think a lot of people in the space community. You talk about the twin study as maybe the longest time that people have been in space. I believe there was one other person who has been in space longer. Okay. Actually, I'm looking. Um, one of the Russian cosmonauts uh, spent nearly 438 consecutive days aboard Mir. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that's a Oof. long 
I don't know how to say it. Maybe Valerie Polyakov. My, I don't know any. I don't speak Russian, but props. You don't speak Russian yet, bro. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. 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 Huh. But yeah. So, still, still, uh, you 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 wouldn't really call, you know, a walk on Mars is not a walk in a park. That's for sure. After all of that. Um, so yeah it's it's really like the the first step on the mars will already take an incredible amount of like kind of medical advancement to even you know get a person to successfully kind of get out from the capsule or the the starship or whatever you want to whatever vehicle ends up landing the first people on mars and there's going to be a significant kind of reacclimation period to even going on to the in martian gravity which is you know i should know 40 percent. i think it's 40 percent yeah it's like and uh i just looked for reference it seems like the moon is about 16 percent so yeah it's a it's a jump um but then again i this might be something that we could we could check and maybe get back into later but i'm, I'm curious actually if the or well i think i just answered my own question as i was asking i was going to ask you kyle uh what you know the astronauts who landed on the moon experienced when they finally landed but they you know their their trip is going to be only a couple of days compared to just in, in, even if someone was on the space station it's much for much longer periods oftentimes so yeah, obviously they they probably didn't even have enough time to recover from the earth to microgravity transition let alone the earth to microgravity to gravity transition of, of the moon yeah i think that's exactly right i mean the the apollo era astronauts i think spent on the order of you know days to a week maybe two weeks in space mm. i think it was about three to four days out they would spend like a day or two on the surface and then they come right home so it's it's really I think it was no more than three weeks. I could absolutely be wrong, sure, but it really was not a significant time to see kind of the changes that we have. The International Space Station really has been able to be that kind of long term testing ground to even surviving in in microgravity. Yeah, and not to spoil any of the surprises for things that you plan to to bring up later on might be getting things out of order, but I, I just thought that it was, um, I don't know, it's just kind of, it's it's kind of interesting, uh, some of the research, which seems to show that mainly the main problem for astronauts when they're coming back into gravity is not so much their muscle atrophy or anything like that. It's mostly just the disorientation, right? Because yeah, so. I, I've actually heard that some of the astronauts gain muscle bulk because of the rigorous activity they have to do in the space station, given um, the needs to prevent that. But another another thing, this actually just opens up a whole can of worms, right? Because I don't know that you would be able to have the exercise equipment when the ship sent to Mars, so maybe you would have muscle atrophy. It seems like the equipment they use on the International Space Station right now is... It's, it takes a whole module just to fit that stuff. They, they have like the a Goliath, like Titan-sized squat rack. Uh, 
Um, I've seen snippets, little snippets of it on Twitter. Pretty impressive machine, but probably way too big. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I think um, like you bring up an important, important like cost benefit relationship between the engineering of the capsule and what it can hold versus you know how well a human can you know play into whatever system that they're in. Mm-hmm. So it takes like better engineering. What I what I call the rocket problem, fixing the rocket problem, having more significant payload to go into Leo, um, into a uh, Martian uh, injection orbit, or mm-hmm. like our ability as humans to become more resilient to kind of adapt to these in- environments. So there's really, I think you need significant a significant mass to of a star of a starship maybe literally starship to <laughs> to get right. people successfully to the surface of mars um i believe i think i'm quoting uh uh the everyday astronaut tim dodd here but i think the the amount of space a given starship will allow is about the size of a uh 747 oh okay um internal space but if you're in only a 747 of space for two years like that's it's still not like great <laughs> yeah i would really love to um this is perhaps a topic for a, a future orbit maybe but um getting into the biology that would arise from having one of those science fiction uh spaceships like you would see in um the movies where they actually have like some rotation, rotation, rotating body essentially to like simulate gravity. Uh, I, and I, I don't know where we're at in terms of the engineering of this as an idea, but it, w- it would be pretty cool to talk about some of the benefits maybe later on. Maybe, maybe we can touch on that again later in the episode, wrap around to it, um, of just being able to simulate some to some degree gravity during a trip this long. Yeah, I mean, you, you bring up, you know, there, there's this problem that we're going to describe in this episode, but really the best way to handle this problem is to prevent the problem in the first place. Exactly, yeah. Right? So it's like, you know, your public health brain um, probably jumps <laughs> to that kind of as a as a default, but you're right. Like, if we can engineer a better craft that doesn't need to, people don't need to experience these um, kind of changes in gravity, um, and you had a magic wand and you could say, oh, you know, I just need a spacecraft that can like rotate and be huge and have like a, a radius of this. And so they don't have these like kind of internal uh, disorientation effects of like small spinning um, spacecraft. Maybe. Oh, yeah, like, that'd be great. But like that's currently we currently can't get enough, you know, sustainable uh, payload to, to Leo, let alone into martian injection orbit or whatever i think i just i just solved the problem and i think i need to like compose a tweet to elon i think what you need to do is you you design the the starship with a floor okay hear me out you one side of it and then you launch two of these things and you just tether them together yeah they, they, you... uh, that's been a thing sorry to burst the bubble but people have talked about that <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um you know, innovating anything here, but yeah. Uh, aside from aside from wherever we're at, you know, to kind of keep us on the topic, 
aside from wherever we're at in the hypotheticals about simulating gravity in spaceflight, we'll kind of rein it in and and focus on the assumption that whoever is going to Mars will be going with a ship that won't be rotating. Yeah. It's just kind of the, that's the what we know. Maybe there'll be a space station that's rotating, and we can figure all that out before we ever leave for Mars. Who knows? Yeah, uh, kind of as you're you're pointing out, like what what is the current situation? So, um, I pulled up here uh, a tweet um, by uh, Dr. Chris Leinhart, um, who is a emergency physician at Baylor College of Medicine, and uh, is pretty active in the Twitterverse and definitely a kind of uh, a figure in the space medicine community, at least that I can tell. Uh, I'm not I'm not an expert in the space medicine community by any means, but uh, he's he's certainly someone who's kind of up and coming or has established himself pretty well in the field, and hopefully someone I could talk to later in, in the future. Um, Baylor College of Medicine really has a lot of good space uh, research going on, probably due to their like kind of proximity to to NASA as they're in Houston, and uh, he he tweeted out here. Um, when some NASA astronauts, excuse me, uh, came back from the International Space Station uh, back in October, uh, there was a couple photos of what seemed to be like an army of people helping these people out of the capsule um, after their, I think it was a six-month stay aboard the International Space Station. And so kind of what this, this tweet begs is, you know, if you need an army to, you know, get you get yourself out of the capsule coming back to Earth, like how is how are kind of these explorers going to Mars really going to be able to handle, you know, getting making that first step in a in a way that they're not going to be uh, completely debilitated by their microgravity exposure. So um, he said, you know, he says here it takes time, um, you know, but it really. You know, it really has, it's really quite striking um, to see some of these astronauts kind of re-acclimatize to gravity. So, I don't know, have you ever been able to catch a, uh, like, a NASA TV, um, kind of, like, when they extricate the astronauts from a capsule? Have you been able to see that before? Yeah, I've absolutely, uh... Looked looked at some of the I've seen footage uh, probably from like several landings where they they have all their personnel on standby. They've got media. They've got uh, space med docs there, um, and then they've got all sorts of people probably to do some testing and and, and whatnot. Like I, I don't think they would waste an opportunity like that to kind of um, basically I feel like a lot of this is still unknown right and the, the sample size is so small and people who have been to the space station and come back or whatever after a long period of time so uh yeah definitely i've run i've run into this i feel like even people who are watching like cable news will will see footage like that every now and again yeah. Mm -hmm. but yeah you're not going to have that you're not going to have that mob of people there to greet you on mars unless we make some some uh, extraordinary developments in, in robotics to have, you know, a robot fleet ready to accept you on arrival. Yeah. 
I think that the steppes of Kazakhstan are going to seem pretty hospitable compared to the Martian surface, uh, all things considered. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I, I wonder know. if they would even, I wonder if astronaut landing on Mars would even leave the ship until they have acclimated, like over a period of days, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, you don't want to. You don't want to trip. <laughs> yeah. Well, at yeah, least you weigh forty percent less. Yeah, that's actually. So I was. This is a complete aside, but the I was actually able to talk to. The. The head of the musculoskeletal research uh, arm of NASA. Um, and. Pretty much she was able to tell me that she she's really interested in bone health and so am I. Um, just as a, like a quick reminder, I like a lot of my research is in bone biology. Um, so I'm doing like a medical degree and a graduate degree um, studying bone biology. So at one of these conferences, they had a presentation about, you know, like the the journey to mars and the risk factors muscus in terms of musculoskeletal health and uh she pretty much i actually had this exact question for her and she was like the, the actual fall risk in terms of fracture for to having a long bone fracture is actually it's not it's not supported it's not uh mm -hmm. it's not a serious risk um and there's actually a kind of a surprising surprising conclusion that she might have, yeah might have been hoping that it, it wasn't that because she's really at least in my opinion in my discussion with her is really interested in uh promoting the use of bisphosphonate therapy for astronauts but right that's, that's really what i uh you know what what i covered in in episode one so that's that's really uh was kind of the the first material that i had to work with and it was inspired by her so Totally. I think, uh, I mean, obviously this is less of a, a space medicine problem, but obviously just the risk of, of falling over and cracking your suit open somehow is kind of a major situation to be in. Um, it'll, I guess uh, it's, it sounds like the, the bones won't break. Hopefully the, hopefully the suit will be up to par with the bones. I, I think the I think the lunar uh, astronauts stumbled around quite a quite a lot, right, in the Apollo missions. But yeah, there's some pretty yeah, funny not an video, videos out there of them like mm -hmm. like falling over and. <laughs> now that I think about it, I wonder how much of that was like vestibular issues or, or just you know, an experience with the gravity. I think. I think it's the the latter. I think it's they. Okay. Really, okay. It was a gate problem. They didn't really know how to like locomote in this sure. kind of strange <laughs> environment. Right. 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 Yeah. But yeah, um, kind of bringing it back to what like kind of the current, what are the state of things? You know, wh where are we at with reacclimation to Earth? Um, wanted to bring up a short video about um one of our probably one of the most recognizable pair of astronauts, the twins, or uh, not the twins, but um, essentially the two year-long astronauts that went up to, to the space station, uh, Scott Kelly, and um, he's right here. And this video goes on to like show some actual footage of 
him recovering. So they, they have him here in this, like... Uh, I'm going to go back really quick. They have him here in this, like... This chair that they're kind of hoisting him up like a, a king of old, you know? Like, bringing him on this, like... <laughs> sure. This, like, uh, palace procession into, this, into these medical tents in the middle of the steps of Kazakhstan. And, um... They take him into these medical tents and they run a series of tests and um, you, you can see him like getting up and, you know, trying to, <laughs> trying to like walk at all. And I believe he's doing this with his eyes closed, if I remember the video correctly. But he's interesting, he's, interesting, interesting. Like, he, he's a sailor. He's, you know, he's, he looks like he's drunk, <laughs> but he is just having a hard time really reacclimating to, you know, the... Like, what is up? What is down? Um, and they do this six hours after landing. They do it um, later on. They pretty much, every astronaut's really a medical guinea pig. And they test and test and test. And it's just quite shocking, um, these videos, because really, you like this is not what you want to have a successful mission on the Martian surface. Like a right. complete, you know, austere environment. And you, you're not going to have these people to help you not fall over. And you're not going to have these people to help you, like, build your colony. So it really seems like, you know, what what can we do about this from a medical standpoint? Because there's not really a way besides having, you know, the engineering fix of having the this the spaceship to be able to completely cover how uh gravity would work there's like really no other way to get around this so um i thought this video was really kind of like shocking <laughs> and it's just there's just so much support that goes into it and the, the component the med there's certainly a medical component that's really important so as far as the medical component goes, uh, what would what would you say are like the main problems? Because to my mind, you've got uh, vestibular issues, right? Like the the little stones in your inner ear have been experiencing microgravity for uh, potentially months, maybe even over a year on on a trip like a trip to Mars. So you've got them suddenly hitting the deck when you have gravity again. And that's gonna that's gonna cause uh, all all kinds of um, dizziness, nausea. Then you've also just got the fact that like the your your body at this point you may have even forgot a little bit about how how to walk, right? Because if you're if you're doing something like that for a year, like I I can't quote a study off the top of my head or anything like this, but I I have heard in if, at least in some situations that people will acclimate to losing a limb, for instance. Like if you if you lose a limb, in, in some respects, you can acclimate to the fact that the limb is gone rather quickly. So what does spending a very long time in space, um, you know, what, what is that gonna do in terms of having, you essentially have to relearn to walk, it's like. Yeah, I think that's- then, I mean, yeah. Yeah, to add, I mean, add, to add to that, some engineering problems. You've got the suit that's probably weird to walk in. Um, there's just a host of issues. 
Yeah, I think it really will make, you know, landing on on Mars is already kind of a harrowing event for, mm-hmm. you know, ro- robot explorers. But having humans land on it will have this big, you know, hurrah, you know, for whenever that happens. But I think in, you know, in the background, there'll be the space medicine people will be like, okay, now we have this, you know, this huge issue in front of us of trying to, to manage these people on the surface. Right. So you, uh, in, in your estimation, in terms of just who you've talked to and what you've heard, bone, bone and muscle, not so much going to be a major issue with ambulating on a ride, right? Yeah. So the, in a way I, um, I would say I'm not as familiar with muscle and I do, I do think, um, I do think musculoskeletal health is probably the second most important kind of red risk. As they say, um, there's a, a a tweet series going out right now of people in the space medicine community kind of defining these risks about going to Mars. And, Mm -hmm. uh, one of them is musculoskeletal health because, Kind of getting into a, another bone aside, you know, that's my my interest of things. But uh, the, the stimulus to to maintain your bone density is is at least is almost all driven by your ability to cause you know impact forces on the bone, which eventually cause you know fluid shearing around the osteocytes, which kind of are the mechanosensors of bone, and you know. It kind of boils down to use it or lose it for bone, um, but it's not really sure, you know, where the the lowest point is. Like the actual, the where uh, bone remodeling dynamics will will go. You know, we know that it's a negative slope, but does it plateau or does it keep on going down or and how far? That's really not known, um, and it's not it's not known for microgravity. And it's not known for lunar and Marcher, lunar and Martian gravity either. So it's mm. really, you know, it's really. I th- I think it's a it's a it's a huge problem, because you you really, if these people are gonna you know live and work on another planet, like you're gonna have to like do manual labor. Like this, these are people that are gonna be building, you know. Even if we have, you know, starships and, you know, this constant line of, of things going to Mars, you know, you, you still need people to, to either direct the robots to, to build all the stuff or you, you're probably just going to have people just building the stuff. Right. And it's helpful. It's helpful to have someone there in person, too. Right. Because otherwise you have this issue, even if it was robotics, you, you would have this issue of uh, speed of light delay. Uh, for for remote control, for instance. So, yeah. So I, I mean, kind of in summary, in summary, musculoskeletal health I think is a huge problem. Uh, I think a lot of people are arguing that radiation is probably the biggest problem on the way to Mars and on the surface. Sure. Um, but that's kind of that's interesting. Yeah. So you know, from my point of view, um, radiation can be kind of handled by kind of covering every habitat with, 
either lunar or martian regolith which is like just like a name for soil of whatever body you're on and uh what about the ship do you think the ships can be adequately shielded as far as whatever you've seen yeah i think in terms of radiation um which is like a, a complete aside from adaptations gravity adaptations i think the the idea is to have like one of the best preventers preventative measures you can have on a spacecraft for um i think alpha and beta radiation like the most common kind of um solar particles that you'll encounter uh is simply water having water in between you and the sun essentially so if you kind mm -hmm. of have the if you were to be able to That's surround your earlier your capsule with water that you're like likely using and trying to kind of reclaim with a life support system uh you could you could block all of like a lot of the uh spes solar particle events and some of the background uh cosmic radiation but i think yeah the, the heavier elements um and i think some of the gamma radiation is is, is harder to stop sure and it's, again, like, this is something that we're probably going to mention every episode, the cost-benefit of, of mass, shooting mass out of uh, Earth uh, Earth orbit, right? I mean, shield to, to have a better shield, you're going to need something that probably is more massive. And that's just maybe what it boils down to, unless you've got some super sneaky engineering workaround. That's kind of the situation you're in. But, yeah, and I... And just to kind of tie that back in, I mean, I think it does kind of have some relevance to this discussion, right? Because really this orbit is about the, the key thing that we're sort of talking around here is uh, how the astronauts are going to hold up when they land on the surface of Mars. Like, are they going to be able to walk out in the ship and plant a flag? Or are they going to be spending the first week in a hospital bed? Are there things that they're going to be having to do, needing to check to make sure that their survival is guaranteed over this period that's going to require them to ambulate. Like, these are things we don't really know. Uh, and radiation is going to, that it's just another thing that's going to play, you know, a role in the human biology on arrival. And I think that's that's the kind of the, the focus point, right? So there are going to be things that are more specifically related to the gravity, the microgravity versus Martian gravity um, conundrum that we've got. But radiation, nutrition, psychology, all these all these other other things that maybe aren't the first thing that you think of when you're talking about landing on Mars after a long flight, they're they're definitely still factors in the health of the astronaut when they land. So I think it, I think it's worth mentioning for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think yeah, if people are listening to this are new to space medicine, really really everything is connected. I mean, as in every field, I uh, like really if you talk about anything in space medicine, you can always tie it to you know, the overall performance of of the astronaut or the overall engineering of their kind of environment it's it's all very interconnected and they all relate to each other 
And so I think, yeah, your, your kind of description is great. It's a great one. For sure. For sure. Yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely a doozy. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's one of those things where I don't know like about you, but you know, we, we probably, yeah, you know, we both think about, you know, people living on the moon and Mars, like probably on a daily basis. I mean, at least for me, I do. And my timeline of when that would happen has actually shifted a lot. Like it kind of comes in waves. And he says like, oh, you know, Starship's coming around, you know, we're definitely going to get there, you know, in, uh, we're definitely going to land on Mars in like 10 years or 20 years or something like that. But, you know, as you learn more and more about the medical problem, I'm beginning to understand that if we have a sustained lunar presence, kind of what I view as a easier to do an easier to accomplish thing by the end of my lifetime that would be incredible like that would be like obviously aim for both for the moon and mars but if we have a sustained lunar presence with everything that's goes on with that that's like that's crazy and like that's you know that's what we like that's that's an achieve like that's that would be insane in my entire lifetime, you know. And if we get people to Mars, that's great, but it's it seems like there's so many problems from, you know, from our sphere, the medicine side of things, to to kind of accomplish. Right. Before we right. you, know, you spend you know the. You know, going to the moon and back like the Apollo missions was like a camping trip on a for a weekend. And then if you want to live, you know, on a, on a kind of a wilderness camping trip, you know, for for years on end, imagine how how much different you have to, like, plan. You know, how much right. you take mm-hmm. what do you, what do you, how do you communicate and how do you, like, what are your resources and your, how do you engineer your, your tent and how do you, it has to be completely different. And then what I view going to Mars is, like, it's like the equivalent of a camping trip to like living in the Antarctic. Like it's, it's so much farther <laughs> away and it's just going to go. Yeah. Summer, spend a summer in a tent on Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's just so much harder. Mm-hmm. So yeah, mm-hmm. it just, it seems like the more you learn about the medical issue and, and I, I don't think there's any appetite in the human spaceflight community about sending people on like a death trip like that's just not like a, that's not a thing like you want like you're going to send people with a reasonable chance of like not only living but like working and like being successful um you know mate like it would be kind of unconscionable to send people without without like a like a real chance of return or right. like a complete you know a pipeline of you know, starships or other craft to like pick them up and come back, you know, that's just not really, I don't think a part of the, the equation. And I hear that way too often. People are like, Oh, people want to go to Mars and like go die. It's like, no, like that's not what. <laughs> that's not, yeah. That's not a thing. I think uh, at maybe at some point in the history of our species, we were a little bit more wanton about the uh, sending people into space 
probably more like way way back when when Russia and the U.S. were first sending people up, and it was more of a it, it was more of a prerogative for the government to to do it, demonstrate the capability of missiles and whatnot that they wanted to do these things, despite the fact that really not enough thought had gone into return missions and the problems that they might face. Um, but in recent years, I, I can't think of a single country that has any, you know, inkling of a thought to just kind of send someone, find a volunteer to just go on a one-way ticket, probably to their doom or whatever. That's just not a thing. Although I, I, one thing to consider is we do seem to have more we do seem to have more players uh, entering the game as far as space goes. I think China's, I mean, I'm sure they have a very storied history of um, exploits in, in space with satellites and, and whatnot, but it seems like they're, they also have a plan to land people on the moon, for instance, I've heard, um, and maybe maybe more countries. I don't know if there'll be countries that care less. I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about like North Korea's and stuff, <laughs> like if they were ever to send people up, they might not care. I don't know. Maybe that's unfair of me to say, but but yeah, that's not really an issue. Um, yeah, so I, I'm kind of, we've, we've kind of got that, but but there's still just the fact that without, without like engineering solutions that we don't yet have, we we have all these problems that we've kind of talked about so far that just sort of feel unsolved as of yet, right? And you like we, I kind of mentioned earlier, just to sort of wrap back, I kind of mentioned, well, maybe they just sit on the ship for the first week. And as, as you were talking, Kyle, I was kind of thinking to myself about that. Um, and I, I think that no matter what really you, you're doing, the astronauts are gonna have to move at least within the ship, right? And a ship, a ship like, take the uh, um, uh, Starship. That's the name, right? Take Starship, for instance. This is a this is this is a vehicle that's like highly vertical, and it lands upright. And that means for astronauts landing on a planet with gravity, they're going to have to be able to go up and down the spaceship under under the under that force too. So even if even if they're not leaving. Uh, and they don't have to contend with like cliffs and rocks or more more likely like a crater or something um, or a basin, I guess, or something like that on the surface of Mars. Who knows what the landing site would look like. They're still going to have to work around the, the fact that the ship is essentially a probably multi-floor vehicle. And uh, if you, if, unless there's like an elevator or something, and, and that might be more plausible given... I have no idea what their designs are for the interior of this thing, but it's it's possible that a ladder might be a pretty big stress to deal with on arrival if the if the laboratory's on the bottom floor, you know, and you've got the food on the third floor or something like that, just complete hypothetical, you're gonna have to be able to go from one to the other. Yep. There's, just, there's just no way around it. And you, and you should expect that. Like, you shouldn't be like, wow, right. this is a huge problem that people can't do. We're just not getting stuff. here, yeah. We didn't expect this. <laughs> we had no I think the interior design of the Starship is the thing that I'm most excited about, like, to, to see. Because I haven't, like, I'm, you know, I get all of the 
all the positives of what it brings about from a rocket standpoint. But in terms of like, you know, bringing, you know, say a hundred people to the Martian surface, like there's a lot to be, I'm very curious to see what the heck they're going to do with that in terms of like life support, in terms of like water reacclimate, like it's just a lot of people <laughs> and it's, you know, it's really not like, I can't imagine that right now. Like, I can imagine sending a crew of, like, four in a starship to have that much room and doing that, like, a crew of four. But a hundred is, like, way different animal. So, I, I can't really... Yeah, I'm I think you would at least... Go ahead. Oh, oh, I was just going to say, at least, for, at least for four, you can have some kind of strategy in place to get everyone out of there. But, um, assuming with 100 people that you would be doing kind of there and back missions to land everyone, that, that would be a big issue. There's no way you're cramming 100 people into a ship that takes a year to go from Earth to Mars. Yeah. You don't even have a, you don't even have an escape strategy at that point. Yeah, it'll, it'll be, it'll be fascinating to see, to see how they do the kind of crew certification that they've had to do for the Dragon Capsule. For the start, mm -hmm. I think that'll be because mm -hmm. they had to. They had to. They definitely now have a lot of learnings from that, and I'm just kind of. I'm genuinely curious to see what the heck they're going to come up with because it's not. It's not going to be easy, and they they really want this to be this railroad to to Mars. You know that ticket, mm -hmm. and it should just be this kind of influx uh influx thing yeah you open up a, a a um a really big topic here with the buying a ticket part because if it's going to be consumer driven for instance like if it's going to have if it's going to be uh spacex or whoever just selling seats essentially um to, to travel to mars at some point which is it's very well a possibility it just depends on whether the demand for private space travel like that is greater than the demand for um, national research interests of different countries. You could potentially have people going to these planets who aren't healthy to begin with. Uh, and <laughs> this, is just a, this is just another thing. Like if we're, if we're looking at a situation where we're landing people on Mars and uh, the circumstances are not ideal from the very beginning, uh, Health-wise, this is just another another slice of the cake. When you're gonna, in, in a discussion like we're having about all the issues you face on reacclimation. Yeah, I think the the crew screening is going to be is not going to lighten up. You know, with increased so? access, okay. with increased access to going to Leo. It, like to low Earth orbit, it will. I think it will gently decrease, but the as you become more comfortable, as like flight surgeons become more comfortable with the risks involved. But I, I think that, and at least Martian missions, in in my life, in our lifetimes, like I, I can't imagine people not having stringent health screenings to go. I can't. Imagine. Uh, I think that. I think that, you know, a lot of these things are cost-driven, right? So while I 
I kind of see where you're coming from in terms, just in terms of what the situation has been for astronauts up until now going into space. This the criteria have been really stringent, right? But if if we if we shift to and as weird as to say it, if we shift to a consumer driven model, it might be more of a a highest bidder situation that you've got going. Yeah. Uh, and I I don't know if uh, if the health requirements will kind of fall to the wayside in favor of, well, we need you know a hundred million dollars to like do to launch this mission, and and our donors are these people, and they're the only ones we have. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we could very well be looking at a situation like. Well, actually, like what bring, what comes to mind is the Dear Moon project. So this, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but I guess for the listeners, I may have heard of it. Please, yeah. There is a, I believe to be a Japanese uh, art collection. Oh yes, 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 yes. Has, I do know this. It has like just a boatload of money, and was ac- actually uh, donated a significant amount of money. I don't think he ever disclosed it, and that's you know it's great. Um, but he donated a lot, a lot of money towards the Starship development and actually, like, was pretty, like, pivotal in terms of getting Starship uh, a lot of gas in the tank at the beginning of development. Um, and kind of in in return, in exchange for that, he's like, I really want to do this, this kind of art project where I really want to, me and fellow other artists of all shapes and sizes... Uh, singers, painters, sculptors, film uh, cinematographers, every type of artist you could ever think of. Let's, you know, we need to capture the imagination of humans. So we should just, we need to, we need to not only get them to space, but we're going to do, we're going to take them around the moon. And then like, imagine what good that would do for humanity, for these people that are and more attuned at kind of, uh, describing and bringing uh emotions into understanding and you know into art into kind of the 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 societal uh kind of meshwork the framework of our society imagine what good they could bring back so i thought that was really interesting um that that that's gonna happen and 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 he like bought his ticket essentially but he, I don't know what kind of health screening he got. That, that, that might have already. <laughs> yeah. Been. Yeah. It's possible that uh, maybe the cost of a ticket comes with some intense, like, exercise coaching and whatnot before. Uh, I, I don't know. And, and it's possible that even, even wealthy donors, such as that one, or like, suppose Elon Musk decides he wants to be the person to take the first step on the Mars since he's really the one running the whole show. Like, who knows? I wouldn't put a pass and he's, he's, he's uh, a touch and go sometimes like that, I feel like. Um, Yeah. It's just, uh, it's just another interesting variable that we might be facing. And I kind of, I think at this point, Kyle, this is probably a good time to kind of like go back and we can kind of list out uh, all of the, all of, points that we talked about as far as obstacles on touching down on Mars and, you know, see if we, if we're missing anything that we haven't already covered. I think we started off um, talking mostly about the issues with uh, 
just inner ear vestibular fortitude is uh I feel like uh Scott Kelly put it in his book. <laughs> so vestibular fortitude is, in, is a thing and uh there are medications for this and I know Kyle and I we uh sort of internally looked at some research articles out there about uh the use of drugs for addressing that as a problem and i don't know if i don't know if we'll get to that given how much time we've spent talking about things that are probably more interesting than the fine details but right you've got so you've got vestibular problems that drugs like scopolamine scopolamine uh seem to cover at the, this point we also talked a little bit about bone and muscle issues muscle i again i don't think that that's one of the bigger issues right now, but this is something that's highly dependent on the, the astronaut's ability to exercise during transit. Uh, and that sort of remains to be seen how much space or mass will be allocated to, to having the right tools for that. And, and bone, it sounds like expert opinion is, is not so much of an issue in 40% gravity, definitely, certainly an issue after the return journey uh eventually especially if we're talking man it could i mean it could be years right a year there a year back plus however long the stay is um that could be a major issue coming back yeah and then one short caveat i think that's exactly right sure. the the bone problem is i think best uh it is the most problematic returning to earth gravity that's my own mm. that's the caveat okay okay Right, and then, so the, the other thing we kind of mentioned, which is less related to gravity itself, uh, just radi radiation uh, and other problems. Like I'm, I'm sure astronauts, at least one sent from the United States in a mission like this are gonna be covered as far as, as therapy and nutrition and all of like the kind of supplemental stuff that goes along with being healthy over a long period of time in a stressful situation. Um, I, like we'll do our best to cover those things and to my to my knowledge i think we do an okay job on the space station like these aren't really principal concerns about long stays on the space station right now but um and i and then one last thing that we maybe didn't cover is the pharmacological therapies we have to cover these things are going to come with side effects too uh so i i think in general You've got like five or six things, probably just deconditioning and 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 lack of experience walking. Maybe maybe one of the major hurdles at the verticality of a spaceship. It's something I hadn't thought until we thought about until we were discussing this right now. I think that might pose like a serious challenge. Maybe everything that the astronauts need to survive until they acclimate will have to be on the lowest possible level of the ship. Um, and that and that's kind of going from a biology issue to an engineering solution, probably. But and and hopefully we'll have engineering solutions for more of these things by the time we're traveling. And then lastly, we covered just the humans, uh, the humans that we're sending. We we want them to be the best of the best. Uh, but the reality is the realities of funding missions like these is a challenge that might best be solved by having the wealthy donors, the people who are interested in being those people on Mars, the first people on Mars. Like someone might, maybe the easiest way to get the next um, uh, Apollo, the first Apollo mission, the crew of that ship, the next the next crew 
that that might be setting a record for humanity might be because of their wealth and and who knows i mean it could be it could be crazy i just i just think that i just think that we've got a lot of a lot of hurdles here that we've mentioned um and i hope that although we might not know a lot about about it now the the first steps on mars won't be the first crawl on mars you know We'll, we'll just have to we'll just have to see how it plays out yeah i i'm i'm hoping so too i um yeah it really seems you know to just kind of back to the beginning um to kind of contrast with our thought of you know landing on the on mars and we have this big moment and yet like the people are debilitated uh from a musculoskeletal standpoint and then from like a coordination standpoint too um, so it's just like kind of, you know, if you understand the medical issue, then you're like, wow, there's this like, there's this big, there's this thing in front of us that we have to take care of. Um, so yeah, I guess this is kind of a good time to transition into, um, the, the first research article that, uh, Ryan was talking about. Um, so I'm really excited to like present research. So I, um, I've been able to, over the past couple of months, Kind of attend different forms of space medicine, aerospace medicine, um, kind of conferences, um, presentations about space medicine, and I've always been left wanting more hard science. Actually, like it's it's kind of surprising. I feel like the field really has, at least the conferences, they're not geared towards around the science yet. Like they're, they're geared towards these are cool solutions or these are cool um, ideas or cool experiences by people. And like not to say that those are things that don't need to be shared. Those are great. But in terms of like actually addressing these problems, like we need like, you know, the fine tooth comb of science to go through these to be able to like solve one of these problems. And so, um, I kind of wanted to lay out a problem of this gravity readaptation um, because I don't know the answer, <laughs> and that's what research is trying to do. And so um, we kind of described, um, you know, many minutes ago now, like the problem. The problem being, you know, people land on Mars and they are their motor coordination and they're, you know, atrophied, they're deconditioned. You know, how the heck are they supposed to make a Martian colony? And so I wanted to talk about like what, where this really stems from and where the kind of, you know, at least two articles, I wouldn't say it's, you know, it's not comprehensive by any means, but I wanted to kind of talk about like what is happening at a biological level, because this is like, what's, what's exciting. You know, this is, this is like, what's uh, wh where we're at with things. So here we have a, um, a, uh, a nice review article um, titled Space, Mo Space Motion Sickness, a Common Neurovestibular Dysfunction in Microgravity. And this was done by some authors who I have some experience with. Um, Dr. Rusimano, I have talked to kind of extensively um, out of King's College London. And um, she worked with some other authors on this kind of nice review article. So I wanted to kind of talk about it. And um, for those listening, really this article is... You know, first is describing this this phenomenon, space motion sickness. So this is when you initially get to space. So we're not even talking about Mars yet. I'm kind of talking about the 
the etiology of like why you know what they first acclimatized to which is microgravity which is what i'm talking about and then maybe if we're able to have countermeasures at this point we could prevent that reacclimation problem so pretty much this article goes into describing that space motion sickness uh, has been observed in about 70% of astronauts within the first 72 hours of entering space, microgravity, which um, I don't know if I expected that to be higher or lower. It seems, it seems uh, like on one hand, I think 100% would make sense. Like you're, you're up and down or gone. Like you're, you know, you're in this completely foreign environment where if you, you know, you drop something, it just kind of hovers there, you know. Like, I, I would have expected, you know, maybe 100% of people, but I guess some people might have kind of a, a resiliency to um, that inner ear issue. Um, so it kind of describes uh, kind of the symptomatology of space, space motion sickness. I'm having a hard time saying that. Um, but pretty much it's everything that you could imagine. It's, you know, nausea, vomiting, sweating, lack of well-being, Decreased mental and physical performance, not great if you're on station and something goes wrong. Disorientation, not great if you're trying to pilot a spacecraft towards Mars. And drowsiness, just all really not good things. And so um, this kind of article goes into some of the kind of symptoms and two proposed kind of mechanisms of like why this happens. Uh, not from a oh, it must be so hard that, you know, up and down are gone. It kind of goes into what the current understanding is of um, the physiology of things. And kind of the first, the first um, kind of theory or the first kind of explanation of things is this idea that you have con uh, sensory conflict. So what you're seeing from your eyes, your inner ear, um, your joints, um, which have an ability to kind of know uh, where they are in space, something called proprioception. And um, really those are conflicting with what, what your other senses are telling them. So, you know, seeing that, seeing that object not fall or seeing, um, kind of having to reorient yourself to this new environment is really um, is really kind of the the impetus for your your brain to and your inner ear not to understand what's happening. So as Ryan kind of talked about before about uh, I think you said like stones in your ears. Yeah, not... to, um, to laymanize it a little, a little bit. bit. Yeah, so he, he uh, completely factual. You have these little things called otoliths <laughs> that are attached to like little hairs in your. Um, Kind of inner ear that based on kind of how you rotate your head uh you can detect angular momentum so you're able to um you're able to kind of understand in uh three three planes you know the orientation of your head relative to your body and so this can go awry um because of these kind of sensory inputs that you're trying to have to re uh kind of re-understand relearn your environment something that we've you know, kids, you know, when they grow up, they kind of explore, um, they see how things kind of work because they're, they're trying to understand the environment and really we're going to be kids, you know, doing that again, just trying to like refigure out how everything works. 
and so um that's kind of the one the one major explanation um the second one is is actually something that's re really interesting and it's called the cephalic fluid shift and so what's cephalic fluid we haven't touched on that yet yeah yeah it's it's something yeah so i'll just describe it uh the cephalic fluid shift is the occurrence that um like under normal circumstances you have uh gravity keeping most of your like fluid compartment uh, is mainly you know blood in your lower legs and your veins are kind of distended from gravity and it's down at your feet um, and when you lose gravity or when you no longer have um kind of gravity keeping the blood there um it your your body kind of redistributes the fluid towards your head um which is cephalic like your uh your head and this this is uh really is is starting to kind of be uncovered in the medical literature to be a occurrence that is affecting most everything and so one of these things it's it's thought to affect is also the the inner ear. So mm. as we talked about, um, you you have these little stones and hairs in your inner ear, and as the fluid goes by it, you're able to detect this angular momentum. But actually, this fluid redistribution can actually um, is thought to probably affect the uh, the different fluids in your ear to kind of detecting these things. So you can kind of contribute to this problem. Right. And we should probably mention the uh, little uh, otolith that you're talking about, this, the uh, stones that are in your ear that help you with the proprioception. Or proprioception. They're suspended in a fluid. So it kind of makes sense that if, you're, if you uh, no longer have gravity pulling fluid towards your feet and it's redistributing to your head, because that's the way your your body is set up to do it without gravity, then some of that fluid will end up in the ear space where the otolith normally uh, reside. Yeah, I think this is, um, yeah, cephalic fluid shift is is also known to be kind of a bad actor um, in causing eye blurriness or kind of decreased vision. Oh, interesting. In, sure. In, in astronauts, so. Uh, the idea is that from this fluid shift, you actually have changes in the um, kind of your your eye pressure, kind of like glaucoma, mm -hmm. and you, mm -hmm. you have, like, have bulging of the optic disc. Um, and I believe that's been pretty well studied in terms of doing ultrasound on the eye in astronauts. So really, the cephalic fluid shift uh, is really going to affect you know every part of the body. Um, so we're not just yeah. We're not just talking about like brain ventricles when you say that you're you're literally when we say cephalic we mean more more so like any any fluid containing repository and on your head well yeah and and actually um i i've actually had like dove pretty deep in terms of seeing if some of the the changes in bone health if some of the some of the losses in um, bone mineral density or the bone mass has been partly due to a redistribution away from bones receiving nutrients like and like growth factors and 
uh, just uh, kind of general. Yeah. So it's not even just a mechanical problem. It could also be this supply problem. Um, but that, like that, that question is, you know, something I would obviously love to do a research project on, but something that I don't, you know, it, it's not funding, feasible to do um, at this funding time. sample size exclusivity of vast you know subjects yeah. yeah but yeah there's like these nutrient vessels that kind of come into the bone if you could like you know run Doppler on that and see oh there's like decrease in this and this is correlated to the you know the decrease in bone mass like that would be I think that'd be kind of interesting but that's just kind of my 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 uh, pet project kind of thing um, and then so we've kind of described uh, kind of in summary space motion sickness is really this it's everything you can think of uh, about being motion sick um, and so what um, and it's caused by these probably these two things that are kind of competing to both cause the problem you know, both <laughs> you can make it worse this, this sensory conflict as well as this kind of fluid shift um, kind of changing how we perceive uh, perceive the world around us in this microgravity environment and so um it's probably pretty pretty unsurprising that um early flight surgeons or whoever came up with these protocols kind of came out with you know throwing some of the most common anti-nausea medications at these astronauts so scopolamine um is is probably one of the most common uh anti-nausea medications and from this article, it seems like it's actually relatively, uh, relatively good at controlling kind of more severe bouts of nausea. So um, it's said to like kind of take action within thirty minutes to an hour and last for about uh, four hours. Well, this actually kind of gets into a different question: the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics of that drug. Like, I, I wonder if. In this citation, I, I didn't look. Um, is is this in an astronaut population? Probably not. So it probably works differently, because you know how the drug dissolves and how it's liberated, absorbed, um, how it's able to be you know distributed in the different uh, compartments um, and reach its its target receptors. Like is not is is not. It's different. It's going to be different. <laughs> it's very. I mean, it could be the same, but it's not. I don't, I would say that it's not like yeah, it's the same um and so the these authors here actually recommend um i believe it's a intranasal injection or an intranasal uh spray so uh i think that's just for you know acute onset of these nausea uh kind of bouts but i thought this was like kind of an interesting article um by someone that i've been able to talk to in the field kind of before i like well before I started this uh, this podcast, um, and hopefully we can get get her on the show because she's uh, a really she's probably more uh, n known for her work in performing uh, cardiopulmonary resuscitation or CPR in space. So she like <laughs> she kind of worked um, as one of the main main players uh, in developing kind of the guidelines for how do you even perform CPR. Maybe we should do maybe we should do like a basic first aid uh, in space episode potentially with her as the uh, expert one day. That'd be cool. Yeah, yeah, it'd be great. Um, yeah, she's she's very likable um, and very like you know very. She wants 
at least the last time I talked to her, she was very interested in in really helping anyone get into the space field, uh, space medicine field, because you know there's there's room for everyone, and we we need everyone. <laughs> like we, it's not like like no no gate like there's no gatekeeping here. Like I want everyone to be interested in this thing. That's why I made this podcast. You know, this is this is the reason I want everyone to be interested in these kind of crazy problems. Um, and so yeah, like this was kind of like the a good review article it doesn't go into any of the data about um you know a given study um about space motion sickness but uh i thought it was like a kind of a good introduction into what may be going on and what are some of the issues with you know say you have drug x that's able to solve you know symptom y it's like well still in space the direct kind of correlation between scopolamine and nausea is not the same even though it's like very routine to give that drug for that cause so it's just kind of interesting that the everything has like you know issue little issues to it that we have to figure out Mm -hmm. um and so um another thing that came out over the past couple of of weeks or at least hit my twitter feed was a real research article that i'm really excited to talk about as well So um, this article uh, looks like it was published back in June of 2020. And this article's title is um, The Impact of Six and Twelve Months in Space on Human Brain Structure and Intracranial Fluid Shifts. So if you're new to the concept of space medicine, if you made it this far and you there's actually like real research by real scientists that work on these issues. It's not um, just doctors that kind of do observing and, you know, they kind of do medical management. This is something where they were asking a question, a hypothesis. They were trying to support it. They, ha- they tried to make an argument for why it should be either supported or rejected. And they presented some really interesting data that um, we hope to discuss here. Um, so pretty much as the title describes, um, these authors were able to you know, find these, uh, you know, astronauts uh, that have gone up to the space station for six and 12 months. These 12 month astronauts are likely <laughs> the the two astronauts that we talked uh, about earlier, Scott Kelly and uh, his partner. I forgot his name. I don't remember his name, but there's essentially two people that went on the same mission on the same mission. Um, and they their data is presented individually in in the in this study, which is kind of kind of unique. Um, and so, what did they do? They pretty much introduced this problem of fluid shifts that we talked about previously. And what they ended up doing is they used uh, MRI, so uh, magnetic resonance imaging. Uh, we might be familiar with it in from a normal hospital uh, MRI. It's not, it's different than an x-ray, um, but it's, it's kind of, is better able to look at soft tissues. And so pretty much they were able to study these astronauts pre-flight and post-flight at a, a number of uh, different days follow-up to see how different structures of the brain looked. Kind of a, a really interesting, um, uh, kind of unique population to study. So... 
uh, as seen in here in figure one, we have these, this kind of just describes their uh, mission profile. So they were, uh, they were given a baseline. I think this is like, I forgot how many days before, beforehand, um, but likely not influenced by any kind of training. Um, uh, no differences in terms of like the, their diet or no major differences compared to their flight, which is important for a baseline. You want, the only thing that you really want to compare is the effect of space flight. And space flight is usually not one variable. It's the stress of, you know, hyper G, which is like, you know, you know, higher than normal gravity from rocket, a rocket launch to microgravity, which is where, you know, we're more interested in perhaps, but then you also have, you know, um, radiation and you have a bunch of different other kind of confounding variables that you can't really control for in a, uh, in a human study. So uh, what they're able to do is they're able to take these astronauts, do a baseline measurement. Uh, they don't have an MRI on the station, so they weren't able to take any measurements on the station. But then they were able to follow up um, doing these same, uh, these same imaging techniques uh, to follow up 5 days, 30 days, 90 days, and 180 days after their flight. And so they were able to... I'm going to skip through all these methods because that's what everyone does in research anyway. And they were able to find some interesting changes in the, in the, in the brain structure. So here we have um, a figure of the ventricle size. I'll start out. I'll start out with that describing. It's just, how much from baseline did they did their ventricles in their brain change? So, uh, for people that are uh, not familiar, you have um, kind of these different spaces in your brain that are able to um, that are either important for producing of this cerebrospinal fluid, this fluid that kind of coats your brain. And allows kind of nutrients to kind of uh, wash over the brain tissue and keep it uh, nice, nice and healthy and hydrated. And um, changes in ventricle size are usually attributed to kind of some kind of pathology. So whenever I think of ventricle size, I always think of like, you know, Parkinson's, or I think of, um, I think of some kind of like neurodegenerative disorder. Um, and, and so they were really, they, I think they were interested in, in reporting the ventricle size because it has to do with this fluid, it's a chamber for fluid. So as you know, what were they able to see differences in where the fluid was accumulated? So um, they were able to show, um, so this graph here in the upper left, um, you have these, this orange and the yellow um, kind of subjects these are the two 12-month astronauts and then you have the kind of average of these six-month astronauts here in gray and you can see that there's actually um there's there's some swelling the ventricles got bigger so their their ability to kind of get rid of their cerebrospinal fluid actually you know wasn't able to keep up with the amount of fluid that was kind of redistributing to the head or it wasn't able to, to to drain out as quickly i don't know exactly if there was a uh there's no way to really determine at this point. Um, and kind of interestingly, I thought the 
it was really interesting that the 12 month astronauts actually had this huge change in slope. So during their flight, you know, the, the chain, like one changed, you know, about 25% bigger. It's huge. <laughs> and one only changed 2%. Like that's nuts. Like that's like, what, it, like what's going on there? So it, it, either there's noise or there's some kind of training thing, or there's some kind of, um, you know, which astronaut had more space flights and the person had a different baseline that already started higher and only changed a little bit, a little bit more. Like, you know, all of these things are kind of remaining questions just based on this very first figure. Um, and then they're kind of unanimously were able to kind of uh, decrease their ventricle size over time. Actually, well, maybe not so well with the um, this first person, but they're kind of uh, able to generally decrease their ventricle size. Um, and importantly, they actually, um, because you couldn't, you couldn't run a, uh, an adequate control group during this study, um, uh, of people that, you know, were exactly the same that, you know, didn't go to space. They actually had a large group of people that, um, or, well, I guess the best way to say this is that they wanted to do a pre-flight and post-flight comparison, but in the amount of time that that study takes place, there could be changes related to age that would be happening just kind of normally. And so they wanted to have this control group to kind of show the general trend over time. And that's what's shown here in the bottom graph. And so generally over time, the ventricles actually get bigger over the course. Um, and they did like a nice randomization and, and nice uh, distribution to kind of match the astronaut populations. Um, whether or not that's sufficient for some people, um, kind of left, left that up. <laughs> that's probably remains to be seen. Um, but so kind of the big take home from this, this first figure is, you know, the ventricles get a lot bigger and, and kind of just interestingly, you know, one got like 12 month astronaut saw almost no change and then one saw a huge change. So, it, you know, maybe this goes back into the screening of things, you know, how could we screen an astronaut to like, you know, better have, you know, less changes in terms of their, their uh, brain health in terms of their brain structure. Um, and then kind of, um, following this up, kind of the same graphs. I'm not going to really describe it the same, um, in the same amount of detail. Um, they looked at the pre-central gyrus, which is, um, if I remembering my step one material well enough, uh, is due, is, uh, it's, uh, about, uh, motor coordination or, uh, motor action, voluntary motor action. So uh, I always remembered it pre-central being you move before you think. So the post-central is the like kind of somatosensory or you, you nice. move, before you, move <laughs> before you feel or something like that. I don't know. But pretty mm -hmm, much mm -hmm. um, this area is, is, you know, your execution of motor function kind of goes through this, a voluntary, you know, skeletal muscle moving. Um, and so they saw some, some interesting changes um, in kind of the the pre-central gyrus and the post-central which is to how you sense you know these these um, motor movements was actually significantly changed too so this is like you know definitive evidence that there is something there there are changes to brain structure when you go to space and it's probably due to this fluid shift kind of changing either the ventricle um kind of pushing up on these different structures um, or just kind of an adaptation to 
um, the uh, space environment. Um, and they also looked at the, the right SMA here, which is the supplementary motor area, which is also due to motor, motor, motor coordination. So they actually saw kind of uh, decreases in the, the mean free water, which I believe is kind of a relative measure for just size, I believe. Um, could, be, could be completely wrong. But uh, they also looked at, um, I think this is all the data together. Um, they also looked at the cerebellum. So cerebellum is, is very much attuned to your balance. And so um, they saw some, some crazy differences in terms of, I think the most shocking thing about this data, these data, um, are the fact that, again, these, the, the, the one 12-month astronaut saw a huge decrease in volume of their cerebellum over time. And one saw an increase. I mean, I don't know how these percentages kind of mean in terms of function. You know, like how much does 1% actually change, you know, the behavior? And that's something that the authors kind of get into in the discussion is that they were really like, you know, we saw these changes, but we weren't able to correlate them to any kind of motor deficit on the on, on an output. So sure. um, they're really just kind of describing kind of the different the, the changes going on in the in the diff these different brain um brain regions Marcus. so when do you think uh they included these specifically because they're related to movement it's since that was kind of a theme here or do you think i i, I know for instance the cerebellum is is what we would call a watershed area where like for instance if there's a hemorrhage in your brain um that this is just a place where fluid accumulates naturally. It's susceptible to fluid accumulation, uh, even when you're on Earth, for instance. Do you think so? Is it more so just a coincidence that they're all related to movement, or is that what the authors are focused on? Um, that's kind of well. They also looked at the frontal pole, um, which is kind of more due to executive function. But I, okay. I, was, I was less interested in that. But I think. Okay. I think so. Um, you're just that's just your your you're just kind of honing in on, on those specific things. No, but I, I do think you bring up a good point. Like these authors were likely, you know, they they had you know they probably had a lot of data to go through, and so for them to write a research article, which is really, you know, data wrapped in a story, <laughs> they probably mm -hmm, were mm -hmm. interested in kind of just you know one aspect of it because they didn't they didn't look at you know um broca's area they didn't look at you know they didn't look at different kind of brain regions that you know control everything that we do right so there's different regions that are important for um i don't know they could have looked at the the caudate and putamen which are you know more known for inhibiting movement so like in parkinson's again um you have like a diminish, like you have these increased ventricle sizes um, that are associated with decreases in sizes in the in the in the caudate and putamen because they which border which border the ventricle right yeah those border the ventricles and um, yeah so really like maybe they should have looked there I don't know um, I don't yeah know they, I don't think they have intention tremor or anything like that but sure I think uh, I wonder actually as I was kind of listening to you through the article one thing that you thought of was uh and, and possibly a cool source of 
individualization uh, between the, the, the uh, participants in the study is maybe uh, maybe people have different um, hydration drives. And I don't know if that's the right term for it, but what I mean by that is if you enter the space environment and suddenly your brain, which houses a lot of the receptors for figuring out, you know, things like blood pressure or, you know, whether whether the, the body has enough fluid to give your brain all the nutrients it needs. Um, if this if this organ is receiving more blood because there's not a down force pulling the blood away from it, that might change one's uh, drive to drink, for instance. So I wonder if I wonder if maybe one like it, it would be interesting to see if, if the astronaut who uh, I think there's a slide, but maybe one of them had a different blood volume than the other one. Perhaps that's why they had um, a decrease in, in volume in certain areas uh, as an adaptive feature compared to the other one who maybe had a constant blood volume uh, throughout this and thus more of that volume is located in the brain now without gravity. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. My guess is like, or like at least my understanding is that the first thing that that happens when you get to space is you want to pee. <laughs> so the, the the result of the fluid shift almost immediately causes people to want to urinate, and they they want to they they um, the kind of baroreceptors and the you know your blood pressure and your your um the stretch receptors and all that that kind of determine your your uh you know blood pressure and hydration status um they all like kind of go haywire quickly and they say well get rid of this volume like we are old volume overloaded like we need to get it get rid of it so actually there's like you know i think it takes about a week i think this is kind of brought up in the in the uh the last article the uh the review article is that the adaptation to the fluid shift takes about a week for you to reacclimatize your blood volume and you know pretty much stop peeing because <laughs> you have That's to crazy. You, you like when you're when you're on station when you're on the ISS you your blood pressure is so much lower um, for a lot of reasons um, but I think it's, at least part of it has to do with the volume. Of, of blood that you're trying to circulate you're very your volume mm. depleted when you're on you you've peed out a lot of your uh, blood volume and so actually in, in in response to coming back to earth i know that one of the things that astronauts choose to do maybe directed by their flight surgeon i'm not sure um is to drink a, a lot of water like drink just so much because they they're gonna need like they're gonna have this kind of event where you know they're their blood volume is going to redistribute back. Right, right. So I wonder if uh, that sounds like something to kind of go back to, like the showing up on Mars situation that might be like an intervention, like you might take away from this article that you would need some kind of interve intervention and arrival to um, make sure you cover this base of uh, fluid shift. Yeah, so actually like just just kind of off the cuff, like I don't really, I really wonder if this um, these fluid shifts 
result in increases in intracranial pressure? Like, are they, because they have these ocular disturbances, because they perhaps have these inner ear problems, are they, like, is their ICP intracranial pressure, is it, is it high? Like, <laughs> and, like, I think you can measure that on, um, I just, I just, I don't, I don't know if you can assess that. I mean, one way, one way to assess that, at least in the emergency department, is doing, you know, Doppler, like, um, on the eye ultrasound, you're able to, to measure the optic disc and see how, bul- like how much it's bulging. <laughs> so, you know, I don't know. Like, I don't know if these, you know, these athletes, they show up and they pop the ultrasound right over their eyeball. A second they, you know, so walk I, in. Like, I don't know. And, and I guess like my point is, is like, is this, you know, is like, uh, is some kind of like, uh, cerebrospinal fluid shunt like warranted like would you would you like put it <laughs> i have no idea uh, yeah that's an extreme that's kind of an extreme solution to an issue but i mean while while it sort of sounds crazy um it might not be if you know you're showing up to mars and it's life or death you're yeah. you're super remote humans need to be able to operate maybe uh maybe this is the kind of pioneering you know research that will need to be done to to figure out what uh what we need to do to our astronauts before they show up yeah i i, I have no idea and I, I think part of the unknown is i i don't off off the cuff or i don't even know if there's a research article that knows the intracranial pressure of astronauts over the course of a of a space flight i would not be surprised if this is something that people have studied because it seems like that it seems like, you know, given the study you brought up, it's kind of like the next logical leap is to look at that, right? And maybe even the leap before this one was the uh, inter- was like a study about intracranial pressure. It might even be in the citations or something, but yeah. yeah. Definitely something I'd have to look into. Um, right. Yeah, one thing that has got to come about, um, I felt at like for brief moments, I was like, oh, there's only like, you know, we kind of came up with these like five risks or like I forgot how many we came up with, but there are like there are like you know five to like seven like known risks to like going to Mars or going to space, but there's really endless amount of possibilities within any of those things. So I I was worried at moments like I'm gonna run out of things to talk about because um, I'm you know relatively new to doing this this podcast in general but like this yeah this is this is turning into like a joe rogan style uh endless discussion format which is kind of fun (laughs) yeah so it's um yeah it really seems like there's kind of a lot of possibility out there and a lot like a lot a lot of research to be done to kind of handle this um this fluid shift problem and um so you know on one hand i kind of thought of this like you know uh csf shunt like okay if it's too high you make it lower okay that's what you do (laughs) and then the other thing that i was thinking of was kind of what i have here on the the last um the last link of the of that i want i'll just right before you segue i'll just throw in that uh for people who aren't super medically oriented the uh cerebrospinal fluid shunting uh that kyle's referring to is a 
is a thing that's done on Earth for existing conditions um, related to fluid pressure and membrane. So uh, it, it's not like a, it's not really something he's just spitballing about here. This is like, this is a solution to high intracranial pressure, um, certain conditions here on Earth. So it, and I, I'm not sure on the risks and, you know, with space medicine, one last thing real quick, sometimes it's with uh, something like space medicine, you have to weigh the benefits of a solution like a CSF shunt, which would solve this potentially if, if this was a major problem with the uh, risks that come with it. And if it's a complicated procedure, like for instance, you're literally making a hole from someone's brain to like somewhere else in their body or some, some external uh, container possibly, um, you need to you need to make sure that the risks are something you can manage with that person remaining in space because you can't just send like their doctor up to help them uh, or it has to at least be something that can be managed by themselves or or whoever else is a crew member okay yeah. so i just want to throw that in as a as a very short kind of um comparison um you know the smallest medical procedures are deemed a risk on astronaut screening so like they have to know about your dental cavity fillings they have to know about your you know anytime you've had anything done any type of surgery like any any type let alone <laughs> one that's dealing with your brain fluid <laughs> your liver yeah would be a that's why it was a complete spitball like it, it just seemed We're like it just, it'd, We're be pretty, such a, yeah. it'd be such a, a huge outlandish thing to do. But We're pretty far, I think. We're pretty far, I think, from getting to a point where we're doing, like, surgery on astronauts to, like, better equip them for space. But uh, it's 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 outlandish right now. That's that's the truth of it. Like, it's possible you could come up with some, some procedures that would enhance performance in space because... No, no organisms, uh, no surface dwellers are really acclimated to um, to null G, right? Maybe, maybe fish or whatever, with buoyancy being in a factor, but yeah. not us, not us uh, land lovers. Yeah. Well, yes. Yeah, so, Sorry. Continue. Continue. No, yeah, but uh, kind of speaking of, uh, we're not like well equipped to, you know, or we're not, we shouldn't be kind of jumping to a surgical intervention to equip us. <laughs> oh, no, no. How about how about we just uh, you know use virtual reality to fix things? So this is kind of um, what this last tweet from the uh, Aerospace Medical Association, um, a nice medical student student group out there um, that is interested in aerospace medicine, getting people interested in aerospace medicine, um, is a is a great group. Um, I'm not a member yet, but I probably will be in the future. Um, and they, um, they tweeted out this, um, you know, this system, <laughs> um, of, you know, essentially tying the astronaut down and, um, kind of putting on VR goggles and, uh, performing this experiment to kind of understand how the central nervous system, um, is, is, is kind of, uh, involved in coordinating these, uh, in, in terms of coordinating movement. So everything that we've been talking about today, instead of a medical, what we would consider kind of a quote unquote traditional medical intervention, you know, maybe it's uh, virtual reality that we could have a video or have a, um, 
a scenario where you are you're relearning how to like deal with 1g before you go back to 1g and therefore this kind of sensory problem the sensory conflict is kind of mitigated so i thought this is kind of an interesting thing to bring up um and uh yeah there's a there's a lot of a lot of different interventions a lot of things to do um we really kind of began this uh orbit one of like describing the problem which is gravity readaptation um you know the ability to even like live and work on other other types of gravity um first going to microgravity then coming down to you know back to a gravity well where you're kind of had to re-acclimatize to living and working on a surface of things um, is a major problem. And it's kind of brought about by kind of two major things. Um, this kind of sensory conflict that you kind of have to undo and this fluid shift. And the second article I showed you is really like, what is this fluid shift doing to the brain? And the, and the fluid shift that's happening to the brain um, seems to be kind of doing drastic things to areas that kind of, integrate information about how you move surprisingly <laughs> maybe unsurprisingly and um that was a really nice research article um got to look at some data and then kind of lastly we're on this kind of you know kind of spitballed this kind of huge medical intervention of a you know a, an icp shunt which you know who knows if they have a increased intracranial, intracranial pressure but maybe vr um might be a solution so i really think at least the sensory one, part, yeah. It kind of mm -hmm. like, it kind of was an interesting topic that, uh, yeah, I just wanted to discuss with you. So thanks for. Yeah, I like I like this uh, format, Kyle. I really like having kind of like an ideation session about all the issues. Like we kind of spent maybe I don't even know like half an hour plus to an hour or something. So I just just kind of ideating through the process of leaving Earth and showing up on Mars and and kind of brainstorming what challenges and i'm sure there are professionals out there employed by space agencies who are like doing this for a living trying to think this kind of stuff up but um yeah so i just like i like that we kind of spend ideation and then session just thinking through all the issues and then maybe identifying what we thought might be the most significant ones and it's it's cool that we uh tied in the, the research article so maybe think about actual known solutions to these to how these problems you know, are solved in the context of gravity on Earth. Um, but I will say, I think we kind of brought up more questions than we answered. And and that's kind of how the research with like the space community seems to go for the most part anyway. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, kind of as I reiterated though, it, I really like I really want more content about people critically analyzing research i like that too i like that too because it's like i actually have not been able to find it and i like yeah. I, I am looking and like i like Maybe. I, there's there's many you know conferences out there and webinars and stuff but like there's too many quotes <laughs> and too many personal experiences like let's talk to si let's right. talk science and like let's critique it you know let, let's be you know i didn't really get to you know didn't get into some of the limitations of the study um but the really like that's what i kind of hope to do is bring in like a, a research article that we can talk about seriously um and kind of like bring the context of like what the problem is and then maybe spitball some solutions so 
Yeah, I like that. Maybe next time we can. Uh, and this is this is a problem I have. I think I just get too excited about talking about talking about all the challenges. And uh, even though even though we're trying to focus on the medicine side, it's hard not to dip, want to dip into the engineering side of things just because that's also super exciting. But um, yeah, maybe next time I'll try to rein it in. We can focus a little bit more on the uh, research and outline outline some of the problems, identify the the uh, the major ones, and then jump into the articles we found to kind of give everyone a, a feel for where we're at in terms of our knowledge about the major problems um, for whatever space medicine issue we're talking about. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that'd be great. And um... if that's our niche, if, if like having, bringing in the research article is our niche, then I'm, I'm cool with that. I like that. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So I think, um, yeah, we're currently at an hour 40 recording, which nice. one, one orbit around the earth takes an hour and 30 minutes. So we've already gone 10 minutes over one orbit. So. Yeah, we're going into orbit two. <laughs> Cut the so feed. I, I think, um, yeah, I think uh, we should probably wrap up. Um, I think, you know, I think 90 minutes is, um, is a good. Ooh, what a concept. Yeah, it's a 90 be, minute episode. It should, it should just be like 90 minutes. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, just, um, I think, yeah, set, setting some, you know, we should probably have an episode where we talk about like, here are the five major risks. Here are the, you know, some, some ground rules. Um, or we could just continue to jump into like a focus topic and, and maybe that's a yeah, short, short episode. You know, I, I, don't know. I feel like, I feel like maybe we could loop around. Like there's a ton to talk about when it comes to reacclimating and though we're going almost, we're, we're kind of butting up against two hour mark almost. Uh, I think we've really only scraped the surface here, especially on the research end of things. There's probably tons of other articles out there in literature that we could have looked into or talked a bit more about. Um, so maybe, maybe we loop back to this topic in the future, especially if someone publishes something cool or there's a development in terms of like the uh, Biden NASA program. They might have a different plan for Mars. They might have a different plan for the Moon. Uh, that that might be a good time to kind of loop back to. Yeah, I think the way that I'm dealing with the topics right now is kind of, uh, you know, kind of sifting through all the information that I get, um, either on Twitter, um, on mainly on Twitter. Um, <laughs> um, sure. There's a couple other little resources I have to kind of have my ear to the ground. Um, but if I find something cool, I usually retweet it or like it, and then I kind of save it for later. And that's kind of what I have um, ready for next the next orbit or the next episode really um i'm actually um kind of before we wrap up things completely um i'm thinking about doing the next orbit on either radiation um like some kind of intervention because there's a cool um let's yeah let's kind of wrap up the show with like what we what we want to do next so i like uh, that yes Orbit, yes um orbit one will probably like kind of like concretize you know the reacclimation problem um for episode one or for episode uh what am i on five episode five and um pretty much i will you kind of go through the problem in like five five or ten minutes and just be like this is the problem this is the thing this is what we hope to do yes yeah, so if you're looking more 
if you if you fell asleep somewhere in the middle of this orbit, you'll you'll uh, perhaps you'll hear the um, the too long don't read version of this in the next episode where Kyle will be pained uh, and agonized to to sort through our the the rambling thoughts we had <laughs> over the last two hours and figure out how to how to put that into a an egg that's only five or ten minutes big. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, kind of uh, forward to that. The the future. Um, I either want to do something on radiation, where there was a recent article or a recent um experiment that wanted to develop a radiation shield made out of human melanocytes or some kind of. Uh, Whoa. Yeah, there's there's some kind of radiation protection that used um melanin, which is like what makes our skin pigmented. Um, and it is a radiation shield for us on Earth. Natural, yeah, natural radiation shield. Yeah, so they want, like, they wanted to either do that or a question that I, I actually like, I, I feel like I have ninety percent of the answer, but not the last ten percent. Um, if someone were to grow up on Mars, like you know, all the pregnancy problems, like you know, withholding, would they be taller? <laughs> I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm like, I'm like ten percent there. Um. Do 10% or 90%? Uh, 10%. I need to finish 10% to be certain about. 100%. Okay. 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 But uh, I hate, like, you know, there, there are people out there in the um, spaceflight community that do live streams that talk about, like, growing up on Mars, people being super tall, um, people being, like, in the expanse, people talking about, like, you know, the belters being super long boned and these, these, these large. Right. And, I'm not sure that that's the case. I'm pretty sure it's not. <laughs> so from a bone perspective, I need, to, I, I need to like, I really want to like dive into, you know, if you were to grow up on one of these places, you know, and have a successful pregnancy and have, you know, kind of normal longitudinal bone growth, intramembranous bone growth, you know, would, that is, I think would you be able, that would you be is a cool I, idea I, I too. No, I don't know. I think, uh, and and you might even be one of the people to talk about this, but uh, not to jump into that episode. I think we could really look into like studies on plants and animals that have a shorter life lifespan to see, you know, if uh, they are bigger than expect or bigger than we uh, would see them on Earth too. But that, yeah, so that that's cool. I like that radiation, the the uh, growing up on another gravity problem, both the topics for sure. Do you have one that uh, you would like? Maybe I'll put a... Uh, oh, man. A... I... Yeah, I mean, I would love to, like, talk about long-term nutritional. Like, for uh, this should probably be in my intro, but I have a master's uh, in nutrition. Um, and that nutrition in space is something I... Like, that. Like Kyle's thing is kind of like bones in space. My thing is plants in space. I think... Like, I, I, I think it would be really cool to be completely... Uh, or not completely, that's probably impossible, but um, independent in terms of, independent from Earth in terms of like nutrition would be really cool to think about. Uh, and then psychology and psychiatry are also things that I'm really fascinated in in terms of living in extreme environments. So those are those are two future topics that I would love to like jump into, spend two hours talking about yeah. for certain. Well, um, you should check your, um, your mail there's a little uh, little uh some reading material for you some reading material okay okay <laughs> cool cool but i i found
found a uh, I found a, a book that you might enjoy uh, on that topic. I'm only I'm only just started the last one you sent me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, uh, let me grab that real quick. Look at me sending Ryan reading homework. Yeah. Um, as you can see, I mean, the text will be backwards more, more likely than not, but I have a copy here of The High Frontier, which is actually uh, a reading assignment Kyle gave me a bit ago. And you can you can tell that I'm I, my bookmark is, uh, you, probably can't even, you probably can't even see it. And that's just a testament to how well I've gone through so far. Yeah, that's fine. That's uh, fine. It's fascinating <laughs> yeah. Cool, cool. Well, great. Um, I hope I hope anyone who's watching, you know, I would be amazed at this point if yeah, it would take a nerd, a, a space nerd on the level of Kyle and I to sit through a discussion <laughs> like this for this long. So uh cheers to you. I hope um you'll join us again in a future episode where kind of uh or a future orbit, I'll say. Um, and and maybe uh drink a few beers or or have a glass of bourbon or something with us as we kind of ramble through these uh, interesting conversations. Yeah, and I sure. think there's more. There's definitely more refinement for us to to have in terms of you know how long we want these to be and what we want to focus on. But I think we'll continue to kind of improve on that. Yeah. Go ahead, Tom. Yeah, I think uh, finding segments, um, you know, like the intro, you know, the um, we, I, I think we need a proper introduction to each, uh, you know, what, who we are. Yeah. I, I need that. I need to have a cool intro too, for and, sure. And then we, uh, need to introduce space medicine the concept a little bit. Um, so yeah, Definitely. maybe actually maybe, uh, after this recording, um, we can just record that and then put that in the beginning. I don't know. <laughs> edit it in I, you know i i'm actually i'm actually okay for just the sake of posterity just so that the, the future has this like you know the humble beginnings of the of our our little podcast here i'm okay with, i'm okay if this is locked into history and what i think i think we can just we can continue to improve upon it but yeah maybe I, who knows maybe this will all be cut <laughs> maybe this will be in <laughs> But uh, yeah, I, 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 we have we have a lot of little refinements to make. That's but true. I think uh, I, I'm just thankful for anyone who would listen to even any like five minutes of this conversation. Uh, and uh, I hope I hope that there are people out there who can enjoy this content, like I know we would. Yeah, and if you are a listener who is in the field of space medicine, who wants to be on the show, uh, just DM me. I'm at Talk Space Med. We'll uh, we'll chat and see if it's a good fit, honestly. And uh, it'd be great to have. Um, you know, we've been looking into having another co-host. Um, currently, it's just Ryan and I, um, but we're we're interested in kind of expanding uh, to have at least one more co-host, um, and then the opportunity to to potentially have guest speakers or guest stars. So um, that's really kind of uh, I don't know when that'll happen, but we're. Again, the only metric is doing them. So, uh, Orbit <laughs> One is in the books, and uh, yeah. uh, thanks again, Ryan, uh, for joining me. Uh, this was Kyle Anderson, um, and this is Let's Talk Space Medicine. Um, thanks for joining me, and I was joined by.
Me, Ryan, <laughs> yes. Uh, also, uh, super super cool space nerd. Um, I don't have a cool uh, formal professional Twitter handle or anything like that right now. So send all DMs to Kyle. <laughs> thanks, Kyle. Spaceman, let's go. Um, but yeah, so we we figured it out, and thanks for joining us. See you next orbit.